I'm Charles Wyckoff from Houston, Texas. Great to be here with a good friend and colleague, Nathan Steinle. Nathan, um, in many respects, you gave one of the most important talks at the American Society of Retina Specialists this year in Seattle. Um, really important data set. It's the longest term follow-up we have for a successfully FDA-approved anti-complement agent to treat geographic atrophy. So Nathan, love to hear what you have to say. Give me a, give me a summary of, of what the presentation was all about. Well, thank you so much for having me. And it was definitely an honor to give the, the one of the highlighted talks in uh, Seattle. What we were looking at specifically was the Gale trial. And what this is, is the long-term extension trial for pegcetacoplan. As I'm sure everyone knows, pegcetacoplan was approved by the FDA in February of 2023 for the treatment of dry AMD, specifically geographic atrophy. And that was based on the two-year trials of Oaks and Derby. And then patients then were allowed to move over to enroll in the long-term extension trial, which is Gale. And Gale is a three-year extension trial, and it will be completed by 2025. And what we were giving in Seattle was the 30-month cut. So the first six months of this long-term extension trial. And overall, about 83% of patients in Oaks and Derby enrolled in Gale, and that, um, that equaled 780 patients, so almost 800 patients are in this long-term extension trial. So that's a huge database we're looking at. And at the 30-month cut, we found some very interesting data points. Love that. So, so, so back up there, give me the numbers. So the patients completed Derby and Oaks, and that was both the U.S. patients and ex-U.S. patients. So all sites could participate in this. And then and then tell us again the percentage of patients that decided to continue on into Gale. Yeah, great question. So overall, about two-thirds of the patients in Gale were actually from the United States, a one-third or ex-US. And the okay. overall large number is about 800 patients, which is 83% of patients that were in Oaks and Derby decided to enroll in Gale. Okay, that, 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 that's an impressive percentage. And yeah. And, um, and then the patients that were getting the, the STAM injection through two years in Derby and Oaks crossed over and got, and got, and got active treatment with Pegsetacoplan. Yeah, that's a very good point too. So in Oaks and Derby, you had four different arms, two arms of monthly, one which was sham and one which was active treatment, and then two different arms of every other month treatment, one which was sham and one which was active treatment. Well, in the Gale extension trial, every single patient now gets active treatment. So those that are on monthly Pegsetacoplan, Stata monthly Pegsetacoplan, those that were getting monthly sham now get monthly pexetacoplan, and those that were on every other month pexetacoplan stay on that, and those who are on EOM sham obviously now get EOM real injections of pexetacoplan. So what we have also is we finally have crossover patients to look at. Yeah, because Love after two years of looking at Oaks and Derby of patients in the sham arms, we now finally have crossover patients. And what we showed in Seattle was that there was a 15% reduction in GA progression in these crossover patients at that first six month mark. And so these are patients who were followed very closely for two years of Oaks and Derby in a large clinical trial, and then now finally get active treatment. And if you, and if you look at that rate, that 15% reduction in GA, that almost exactly matches what all the patients did at baseline who got active treatment of pegcetacoplan in that first six months. So the data really matches up. So wait, there's a lot more to unpack here, but the 15%, that's combining monthly and every other month. 
That is correct. Over time, they'll build parcels apart, but in Seattle, we put those two data points together. So the monthly and every month, everyone got active exited Copeland at that six-month mark. And it was actually dose-dependent. It was more like 17 or 18% in the monthly okay. and about 12 or 13% in the ever of the month at that six-month mark. Okay, fascinating. So really mirroring what we yep. saw two years before with the patients originally randomized to active treatment. That, 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 that's nice and confirmatory. Exactly. The other piece of confirmation that we didn't present in Seattle, but they have internally is they have fellow I. And so these mm -hmm. patients now have switched over their crossover. So they're not getting active treatment in the one eye. Well, they can still follow their fellow I and they can compare that to the fellow I. And they show that again, they should have that reduced progression of GA now in the eye that's getting active treatment versus the fellow I. Okay, fascinating. Well, I, want, I want to come back to the fellow I, but then tell me about how how the other group of patients did, the patients that were receiving Paxidicopan for the core Oaks and Derby trials and continued Paxidicopan, how'd they do in that last six months? Yeah, so really good question. So it's exactly what you'd hope. You see this differentiation over time, this widening of curves. And so what we saw was a 39% reduction overall in patients who were getting monthly Paxidicopan in that final six months, that, that, that 24 to 30 month mark. And then the EOM, the every other month arm, they got a 32% reduction. Um, and so you see that widening of curves over time, which is exactly what you hope. And then even more interesting, and I hope you don't mind if I bring it up, is the extra foveal lesions, the lesions that are, you know, not involved in the fovea. And their criteria is very, 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 very broad. It was just basically if the lesion was not exactly touching the center point, it was an extra foveal lesion. And this is where the drug seems to work the best. And in these patients, we had a 45% reduction in that mm. final six months and a 33% reduction in the EOM arm in that final six months. So even better efficacy in that final six months. So we're up we're up to pretty big numbers here. I mean, originally yeah. through six months, a year, yeah. I think all of us as retina specialists looked at that and saw, you know, numbers in the teens or low 20s, mid 20s yeah. and thought, mm, is this meaningful? So yeah. Are we in now a level where, where we say, huh, 40% reduction, you know, maybe even more depending on your specific phenotype becomes quite relevant? Is this a relevant clinical yeah. percentage now? Yeah, Charlie, it's a great question. So, you know, I think we also have the first, you know, data cuts and we're like, you know, it's a lot of injections for not a lot of gain, but now mm -hmm. you're at the 30 month mark. And if you have an extra phobia lesion, you have a 45% reduction in that progression. So it's mm -hmm. 30 injections over 30 months and a 45% reduction. That's meaningful. And yeah. we have another, another presentation that we'll present in the future that kind of tries to actually really show how much vision we're saving these patients, how many years of vision we're saving these patients. And when yeah. you look at it in that way, you really see the differentiation of why you use this drug, especially those extra lesions. Okay, so one other detailed question. So, so you had, right, in the Derby and Oaks, obvious, you got sham active treatment, but now in the extension arm, everybody's getting active treatment. Yeah. How do we know the percent reduction? What's our comparator now? Yeah, good question. And so what they did for the comparator, because you lose your comparator, right, before, um, what, what they did then is to get that 15%. So if the crossover patients now, we could say they have a 15% reduction in GA progression, where did that 15% come from? Well, we looked historically at what their GA progression was in the first two years of Oaks and Derby. We have very good clinical data for that. And then we did the um, average of each of those six-month marks to know the rate of growth, which is very linear. And then we had that growth rate that we were going to project over that final six months, the first six months of Gale, and compare that to what they actually progressed. And so it's that differentiation of uh, projected uh, growth from what they did the first two years of trial versus now they're on active treatment. That makes sense. Well explained. And yeah. then 
One, one other question about endpoints, so functional endpoints. I know through Derby and Oak, it was a yeah. frustration for the entire field that we yeah. never really saw a, a, a dramatic you know, visual benefit of treatment versus not treatment. There were signals on the microperimetry, for example, um, but nothing yeah. really jumped out as being dramatic. Are we, are we assessing that in the extension trial or does it become more challenging because there's no comparator arm? What, what do we have yeah, about function? Yeah, we get that question a lot. You know, what about vision? What about vision? And what we've yeah. looked at, and I could say at the positive endpoint we've seen so far is those lesions that are greater than 250 microns from the center of the vision. So those mm -hmm. that are greater than 250 microns from, from the from the foveal center, those patients in these in these extension trials seem to have you know much better visual outcomes versus those who don't get active treatment. And it makes sense, okay. you know, this drug's not, I don't think this drug's gonna give patients vision back, but it's gonna yeah. stop that progression into the phobia. Okay, great. Yeah. And then and then helpful. And then pivoting to safety here. So yeah. we knew from the core trial, there was a signal for three things, right? Wet AMD conversion yeah. for intraocular inflammation and then ischemic optic neuropathy. Where, where are we with those three? Yeah, great question. So first off, the CNVM, that continues to be a trend. I remember you and I were on early calls during the Philly days, the phase two trial, and we were seeing mm. these, these incidents of, of wet AMD, and we thought that was fascinating. And then it was bared out to be true in, in Oaks and Derby. We see that dose-dependent increase in conversion to wet AMD. And we see that in Gale. We see that it, you know as patients continue to get active treatment, they have a higher rate of conversion to wet AMD. And it, it's, it's completely dependent on dosing. So if they get monthly dosing, they have a higher rate of CMDM conversion, mm -hmm. less than mm -hmm. the every other month, and definitely less than the fellow eye that's not treated. Uh, the okay. second question was about, uh, I know you asked about the ischemic optic neuropathy. Right. I know. Yeah, that's interesting. And so when I first heard about it, is I was thinking that it would probably be first injection and it might be related to the volume, right? Because now we're all of a sudden doing 100 microliter injections of these patients who are not used to doing 100 microliters. And mm -hmm. I thought it was a volume thing, but it's just not. And when you look at it, the very first incidence of, of ischemic neuropathy was six months in the trial. So it was about six months into injections. And the average mm -hmm. time point of when that first ION pops up is over two weeks past the injection. It's like 17 days after the injection. So it's mm -hmm. not, it doesn't seem to be related to the injection itself. And the mm -hmm. second thing is you think, well, maybe it's a first injection exposure, some kind of, you know, some kind of toxicity. And, and that doesn't seem to be the case either. These patients, a lot of them had over a year of injections before they had the ION um, and the very minimum of at least six injections before they had the ION. And so then the final thing you look at is what about the disc at baseline? And mm -hmm. I got this question in Seattle, but it's a little bit hard because it's a, you know, macular study. So we're looking at the macula, mm -hmm. but we're going back to try and look at the optic nerve. But I, mm -hmm. we did assess all these patients that had ION and every single patient that had ION had a disc at risk at baseline. So that seemed to be a big risk factor, disc at risk at baseline. And it was it was higher in patients that got monthly injections, much higher in patients that got monthly injections than those who got every other month injections. Right, okay. And then the IOI, any inflammation in the gingale? Yeah, great question. So overall, the overall rate of uh, IOIs was 0.26%. So one out of 400 injections had some type of inflammation. And what's also okay. important to notice is that, you know, there was no vasculitis or occlusive vasculitis that's been seen across Oaks, Derby, or Gale. And to date now, we have the 23,000 injections across Oaks, Derby, Phil, Philly, and, and uh, Oaks, Derby, Gale, Philly, all four trials. So 23,000 injections, there's no, been no vasculitis 
or occlusive aspect as seen in this. We even went back and looked at those, those cases that were determined to be severe IOIs and says, well, maybe we just misvascularized. Maybe there was a vasculitis. Mm -hmm. and, and the answer is no. We, you know, we looked at it internally and then we had external review by UBI specialists to say if those severe cases of IOIs and all of them had fluorescent angiograms, is there a case of occlusive vasculitis that, that, that just wasn't? Okay, very helpful. Okay, then, then bring us, thank you for, for walking through that data. Fascinating, yeah. very important data set that will be rich with data to come for years, yeah. it seems like. Yeah. So now pivoting back to both of our clinical practices, you know, there, there's a lot of patients out there with AMD, with DA. How are you using PEGC to co-plan? And, you know, here we are at the end of the first week in August, after, you know, post ASRS, post the yeah. REST committee update with these vasculitis mm -hmm. cases where the REST committee and PELUS have worked hand in hand to try to better understand this. Um, right. Tell us how, how, how your clinical practice is, is, is playing out with Peg City Copeland and how that changed over the last week. Well, I'd love to eventually hear your, your answer to the same question, but you know, I was an early adopter. We've been involved with this molecule since about 2018. So we've had five years of clinical experience with the trials with Pexidocopan. So I feel very comfortable with the molecule. And um, and so I, you know, I've been I have lots of patients on Pexidocopan, and those that were already on Pexidocopan, I've, I've kept them with the same dosing frequency that I was before. My one mm -hmm. change I am doing is when I have a bilateral GA patient, in fact, I had one today that I started first time for pegcetacopan, and they were asking to have both eyes <laughs> injected today. I just, just being a little bit on the cautious side, and I just injected one eye today, and we'll bring them back. And then next time the everything looks like it's going the way I expect it to, then with no inflammation, I, I would plan to do both eyes next time. Yeah, Nathan, I, a very similar approach. Uh, like you, we were heavily involved in the clinical trial, clinical trial programs early on. So had a lot of patients on the medication um, uh, and that had been happy on, on the medication through many of the trials. And, and I was an early adopter when it was FDA approved. I think yeah. we've been priming my clinic for a long time. Okay, we have a medication coming. This is exciting. So I have a lot of patients um, uh, on pegcetacoplan and I maintain all of them on pegcetacoplan after these updates. Um, but, but it has given me sort of pause like you in sort of how I rolled this out to new patients. I, I agree with your with your plan entirely. Um, and then I also am mentioning, you know, clearly sort of some of the risks with this with 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 my patients. You know, that the conversation gets nuanced and it takes a lot of chair time, but important yeah. that we that we mention this and are clear with our patients, knowing that it's out there, that these patients are Googling this, right? Their, their families are Googling yeah. this. I've had a few patients ask about it. What do you think about the vasculitis cases with yeah. this drug? And so it's important to, to inform the patients before they inform them um, their self, I think. And then, I, you know, I've actually seen four cases in the commercial landscape of IOI with pegcetacoplan in my clinic. I just bought a new fresh one today. And three of them were, were very clearly IOI with, without a lot of pain, really very little indication of infection. So I treated them as such and they've all gotten better and returned to baseline. One of them was more substantial um, and had intermediate uveitis with, with a little bit of fibrin and cell in the AC. Um, and I treated them as an infection, even though it was 20 days after an injection. I assumed it was IOI, but I didn't want to miss an infection. And so I did a tap and inject the culture was negative. So ultimately, I'm calling it IOI, non-infectious. Um, but I, I, I do think, at least in my hand, I'm trying to be cautious because I'm not sure that the phenotype will be exactly the same in eyes that have an infection um, once you inhibit complement. And on the, on the flip side, we, 
we've had standard endophthalmitis cases out of, you know, Derby Oaks. So we know you can get the traditional endophthalmitis presentation, but just my own, own hands, making sure I'm not, I'm not missing an infectious cause um, if a patient presents with significant inflammation. I'm just curious, Charlie, were all these IOIs, were they first-time injections? Were they repeat injections? Yeah, all of them were actually repeat injections. Okay. Yeah, go. three of them were after the second, and one was after the third, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And then last question for you, the, the co-administration of wet AMD and GA treatments. So I'm managing a lot of patients with anti-VEGF and type of, you know, simultaneously. Um, how, how, how are you doing that? Are you doing that in a different day injection? What do you do? Yeah, good question. So I get that question a lot. I'm sure you do too. And so I've been doing different day injections in the trials, just so people hear it, you know, they actually gave the anti-VEGF injection first, and then they would wait 30 minutes and then they give the pegcetacopin injection second on that same day. And in our busy clinical practices, it's just difficult for patient flow. Um, I'm also a little bit worried about that volume administered just from a, you know, from the IOP standpoint. And then finally, probably most importantly, just you know, that, that, can, can the payers, you know, assess two different drugs in the same eye and the same patient? It's just difficult to know mm -hmm. where they, they would fall with that. So I do mm -hmm. do two different injections. And um, mm -hmm. if a patient has bilateral disease, so they're having, you know, wet and dry in both eyes, I try and alternate it so that they're getting the anti-VEGF in one eye and pegcetacopin in the other eye at each mm -hmm. visit so that they're not giving the same drug in both eyes on the same day. Yeah, it makes sense. I'm glad you mentioned yeah. it. We do have to be careful. Higher volume, viscous yeah. agent. Be careful to consider management of IOP. It's a critical part of this. Yeah. Well, Nathan, appreciate your time. Nathan Stanley from um, California Retina Consultants down there in beautiful Santa Barbara. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for, for your leadership in the field, Nathan. Oh, Charlie, thank you. What an honor. Thank you so much for having me.